heaven, there's an unlimited amount of time. What if you could fix something and it wouldn't ever break again? What if you'd mow the yard and it stayed mowed looking perfect? What if you built something and it didn't deteriorate? We're used to rust and corrosion and deterioration. It's all because of sin. And so that's a great illustration of that. Uh, thank you for being so kind this week, for coming on weeknights uh, to a crazy speaker like me. It's been a lot of fun to share this stuff with you. Um, anybody that wants something woodwork to take home is 20% off tonight just so I don't have to load it up and haul it out again. So whatever the price is, you can 20% off would be fine. Uh, is there any questions anybody has before we begin the last session that needs to be covered? That Okay, I'll hang around. Let me, uh, let me say I'll do my best to get through the rest of these slides. I usually go through Wednesday night, but I had to be in Nashville tomorrow for uh, the Lipscomb Lectures. Um, I've got to be there uh, speaking Thursday and Friday, so I had to kind of compress this. So I've done my best to cover as much as I can, and, and tonight is the, is the kicker. I, can't, I know I can't get through all these slides, so we'll go as far as we can. And the ones I put at the end are the ones that are a little bit of, uh, it's okay if we don't get to those kind of thing. So don't feel bad if we don't cover all 165 <laughs> slides that I have left. By the way, one night I covered 140, so we can do this thing, you know. Um, the first part of this we're going to call Following God Through uh, Tough Times and Difficult Circumstances. It's really appropriate for today because we are dealing with a lot of uh, issues today. I think my, you got this where I can, my, my clicker's not working here. There we go. Uh, and I want to start with this story about Billy from Arkansas. The very first place that I gave these presentations uh, a couple of years ago was in South Arkansas. And have I told you, Billy? Have I told you this story? Okay, good. Just had a flash of having said this, and, you know, I speak so many places, I'm afraid I had done it here. Stop me. Raise your hand if you start remembering the story. Billy was sitting in the audience, and it was a cold winter night, and he, uh, when he got to leave, he put on this real good-looking uh, Drake duck hunting jacket. And uh, I noticed it and commented on it and met him. Well, uh, I spoke Sunday morning and Sunday night, and I got a voicemail from Billy Monday morning. Now, Billy... Um, I didn't remember him because I, me I meet everybody and I can't remember all y'all's names. You know, you, you got one name to remember, I got, you know, three or four hundred to remember. But uh, I, did, I did mention to Billy that I really liked his coat when he put it on, so this coat always reminds me of the, of the story. But I had covered uh, what we've covered up to now, and, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that there really are demons, they're named in the Bible, and each of them has a territory. We looked at the territorial limits and the angels uh, that fell from uh, God followed Satan in rebellion, and I covered those things on Sunday. So Monday morning, uh, I get this voicemail from Billy, and it said, uh, Steve, this is Billy. I was the guy with the duck hunting coat on. He said, um, I think God sent you here to save my life, my soul, and my marriage. I've been thinking about committing suicide. Uh, uh, my wife found out I had credit cards hidden she didn't know about, and um, I've been sleeping in the other bedroom for six months, and things aren't going well. My my uh, kids are in college, it's just the two of us at home, and, and I've just been so depressed about all this, I was thinking about killing myself, and I didn't think demons were real, and then when I, I saw your, your verses yesterday at, at church, and I realized demons are real, and this is a real battle, and so I went home uh, after church last night, and I told my wife, I want to show you where I'm, I'm keeping all my hidden pornography, and uh, I want us to burn it together, and so... I took her to the gun safe. I opened the gun safe. I had it hidden behind all my shotgun shells. She would have never found it. And we burned that pornography together. And uh, I told her I wanted to be a godly husband and a godly father. But, Steve, I do have a problem. And I need your help. Uh, please meet me at the church. He said, I think I have a demon somehow attached to me in some way I don't understand because 
I can't read the Bible or pray. If I start to read the scriptures, I, I get confused and my eyes kind of cross, it gets blurry and I can't read. read anything else, I'm fine. But if I open the Bible and read, I, I can't. And if I start to pray, I'll start a sentence and I can't keep my mind focused. And so, you know, I just can't pray. So I'm asking you to meet me at the church and pray for me. Well, I never had done that before, but I wasn't going to turn him down for prayer. And I drove up to the church, and when I pulled up, the preacher pulled up. He'd gotten the same voicemail. And so we went in his office, and we just kind of sat down there, the three chairs, and I said, uh, okay, Billy, are you ready to be a godly husband now, a godly father? He said, yes, I am. And I said, okay, we're going we're gonna to pray for you about that now. And I put my hand on Billy's shoulder, and the preacher put his hand on Billy's other shoulder. And I didn't have anything written out, and I just prayed. I just said, God... Billy wants to change his ways, and he wants to be a godly husband and a godly father. And he's done things he shouldn't have, and uh, maybe there's something evil attached to him. We don't know. He thinks there is. So if there is, in Jesus' name, we bind it and gag it and send it to the pit. We don't want to send it away from Billy next door so it hurts the guy next door. We, we know there's a pit. Jude talks about the angels in the pit that disobeyed God. Wait in the day of judgment in chains. Put these in the same chains. In Jesus' name, amen. How you feel, Billy? He said, I feel great. Give me three sets of them stakes. And Billy went up and, and uh, put, uh, he had a 10-acre lot with his house in the middle, and he took one set of stakes and put on the corners of the 10 acres, and one set of stakes around the corners of his house. And then, uh, just like the mezuzah on the doorpost that we've seen pictures of, he uh, ha hammered a little nail in uh, each door frame and uh, put the stake with the hole just right on that nail, and he put it just like a mezuzah, like it said in Deuteronomy 6, put my word on your gates and doorposts. Two hours later, I got a text from Billy. He said, Steve, I just want to thank you. It worked. I can read the Bible, and I can pray now. And that night, his wife and him came back for the Monday night session like we had last night, and she was just bawling, hugging me, telling me, thank you for saving our marriage. And I said, well, I didn't. God can do this. I'm, I'm nothing, but he's everything. So his word is still powerful. So, uh, interesting story. Each of these stories I'm trying to share, not just to be a story, but to make a point. There's different aspects of each of these stories, and I hope that they'll, they'll help you in some way, or you can help somebody else with these stories. For those of you who are new, how many people are new tonight for the first time? Okay, I can skip that slide. But almost everybody's been here. It's spiritual warfare. It's things happening in the physical because of what's happening in the unseen. Well, my, maybe I need a new battery here. Anybody need triple A's back there? All I got is double A's. This thing uses double A's. There we go. Watch for satanic attacks. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. If you got any triple A's, bring me some, Doc. Uh, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. See, he's your enemy because you're in covenant with God, and he was God's uh, enemy. We have ignored this subject. We've acted like uh, if we ignore them, they'll go away. Even if we know in the deep recesses of our mind there's verses that talk about them, since we haven't talked about them, we've acted like they're not there, and then they really are there. Uh, this little section, I, I want to talk about how sometimes we have excuses for what God wants us to do, and it turns out the excuses are actually lies. And I'm going to use Moses in this example for us, to, for us to consider. This is from Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses pleaded with the Lord, you know, pick somebody else. I'm not a good speaker. Remember that? I mean, we've talked about that, and I've even heard radio programs where they talk about, hey, you know, Moses probably stuttered and, and all that. Well, I got to thinking about that and looking at, at that, and uh, 
And I found some verses that kind of argue with that. And let me give you a couple of thoughts that go with it. First of all, Moses was raised as Pharaoh's own grandson. Thank you for the batteries. And so it's pretty logical to, uh, uh, when you think about the fact that he had the world's wealth at his disposal, it's pretty logical to, to think it's reasonable to assume he probably spared no expense in preparing him because he, he didn't know which one of the grandsons might be a Pharaoh someday. So he spent the money and did the teaching to make sure they were well-versed in all aspects of what they were going to need. And to be a leader, you're going to need to be a good speaker. So I kind of thought about that, first of all, that, that seemed like that made sense. Well, I found out biblically that is true. Acts 7, verse 22, teaches that Moses uh, was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So that kind of agrees with what we just talked about. He spared no expense in educating his grandsons, not knowing which one would be the next uh, Pharaoh. Or maybe it wasn't the batteries. Old ones did better. <laughs> we need to get closer. Put the old ones back in. Sorry, it's not my fault. Maybe, that's, maybe I'm just impatient hitting it too fast. Uh, so that, I'm going to show you why this statement is a lie. This is back to Exodus 4, verse 10. Moses is saying, hey, pick somebody else. I get tongue-tied. My words get tangled. I'm not a good speaker. Acts 7, 22, the end of the verse says, Moses was a powerful speaker. He wasn't just okay. He wasn't average. He was one of the top of the class. He was a powerful speaker. Acts 7, verse 22. So see, it was a lie when he said to God, I'm not a good speaker, pick somebody else. He just didn't want to do it. And sometimes we're the same way. What excuses are you doing, are you giving, not to do what you're being asked to do? Maybe teach a class, or lead a prayer, or help with the Lord's Supper, or help with the nursing home, or you say, well, that's not my gift. Well, I would have told you writing's not my gift if you'd asked me. And I've written four books now. I mean... You do what God wants you to do, and he, he does on-the-job training. He doesn't pick the qualified, he picks the willing and qualifies them on the job. It's called on-the-job training. See, God's kingdom versus your kingdom. Satan wants you to decline all those kingdom projects where people ask you to help with this or that. He encourages you to put your kingdom over God's in every possible way. But see, you know, nothing happens without God's permission. Did you know that? This is one of the verses that said that Lamentations 3, 37. Who can command things to happen without the Lord's permission? Nobody. So if somebody's asking you to do something, then maybe it's God nudging you. I told you a story about Colin Trevor the other day, and he was looking at pornography and turned out it was going to ruin his life. He got help and turned around just because I called him out of the blue. wonder how long it would have gone on if I had ignored God. You know what, I think God's going to get his work done whether I say yes or not. If he nudges me three or four times and I don't answer, I bet he'll find somebody else to nudge. You follow me? If I kept having good things happen and I say, man, I'm lucky. If you were God blessing somebody and they just gave luck the credit, I think I'd quit blessing them. We need to connect the dots. How many times in, in Israel were they having a drought and here they were being unfaithful to God, worshiping idols? By the way, I got to go to Israel in 98 and, and you know with that story of Naomi going over to Moab because there was a drought in Israel? I've been, I've been over there. They lived in Bethlehem and it's just down the hill and you go right by Jericho and you cross the Jordan River, maybe five miles. 
and there's no drought over there in Moab, but there's a drought here. You think God can't make it rain where he wants to and make it be a drought where he wants to because they're unfaithful and worshiping idols? I guarantee you he can. And they weren't connecting the dots, and neither are we. We need to pray we understand that and start connecting the dots. We need to be willing to put God's agenda first and be willing to change our schedule based on what God allows to happen in my life. I can get up in the morning and go out and say, a flat tire, I got a flat tire, I don't have time for a flat tire, I got places to be. Or I can say, hmm, a flat tire. Maybe I'm supposed to meet somebody and share the Lord with him that I wouldn't have met if I hadn't had that flat, or maybe it's delayed me long enough that I'll miss that wreck I would have had if I hadn't had a flat tire. Same flat tire, two different attitudes. You see, a lot of people want Jesus as their Savior but you're also supposed to be making him your Lord and Master. And that means you're willing to let him change your schedule based on what happens in your life. Lord, open our eyes to what we're supposed to see around us every day. I shared this with someone today. I can't think who it was, but uh, I, I think a lot of people I've heard say, you know, you know, God loves you. You just decide what you want to do for God, and he'll bless it. What if Noah had decided he wanted to build a church for God because he's going to preach for 120 years? But God wanted to build a boat. Well, Lord, I need the church. I'm going to preach 120 years. Well, Noah, I want you to build this boat. No, God's boat is more important. In other words, asking God to bless what I've already decided to do is kind of arrogant. It's kind of like saying, Lord, I've decided I want to do this. I want you to come on, get on board with what I plan. As opposed to, Lord, please open my eyes to what you're already at work doing around me. Help me to join that work because I know it's going to be successful. I know you're going to bless that. Two completely different approaches to the same situation. One of the interesting uh, things that happened when the stakes first happened and uh, started having those available is this Home for Unwed Mothers that's only a few miles from my house. I'd never heard of them, but they heard about the stakes and called me and wanted to uh, meet and, and hear uh, what, what I, how this was used and what I did and all that. So. I meet these two ladies that run this home for unwed mothers, and uh, they said, oh, we love this idea. We want some stakes to put around our facility. There's 16 women, and then we had the staff and, and so forth, so they did. They staked out, made, a, made an event out of it. They all went outside, and they read the verses out loud together. The babies, mothers holding their babies and all the workers together, and they prayed together, read the verses, and went, all walked to the next corner of the property and repeated the process. They prayed at all four corners. A few weeks later, she called, and she said, would you come do a Wednesday night Bible study uh, at 9 o'clock? Because we get the babies in bed, and then the mothers have their Bibles, and we meet in the lobby. And I said, well, sure. So I go over, and, and they say, this is the stake guy. They call me the stake guy. Steve, tell them your stories. And she said, he's the one that invented the stakes. That's what she said. Uh, he invented the stakes that we put out the other day. And they all said, oh, oh, nice to meet you, you know. So there's all these ladies, and, and uh, I start spitting out all these stories. And then I heard somebody say, this makes perfect sense. And I said, well, what do, you, what do you mean? She said, oh, we were all fussing and fighting and arguing every day till we put the stakes out. That's gone, stopped. I said, really? Well, that's, that's great. Then another lady over here said, well, you know, I was having nightmares every night till we put these stakes out. I hadn't had a single bad dream. I said, well, that's great. And then there was a lady sitting in the back on the floor, young lady, and she was, she was pretty shy, and she, she raised her hand. She said, well, let me tell you something. She said, the day after we staked out the property, I was sitting right out here on the front porch, and you know we're on this corner, so there's, there's a street going on both sides right here, and I was sitting on the porch reading my Bible, and this man came walking down the street, and he was just evil. You know, you can just see it and feel it on some people, and he scared me at him being close, and I was out there by myself on the porch, and 
and he got walking up close, and see, there's, there's our property, and then a sidewalk, and a little bit more grass, and then the street, so he got up close, and he started talking to me, and I just kind of froze. I didn't want to talk to him. I was scared, and, and, he, and I didn't answer, and I could tell it kind of agitated him that I didn't answer. I just kind of looked at him kind of, you know, shaking a little bit, and, and he got close, and he was talking, and I wouldn't answer, and he was going to step up off the, off the curb over onto the, you know, off the curb onto the sidewalk, and he went like this. And he left. He literally couldn't step across the line where the stakes were. <laughs> I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up. So one of the workers took some of the stakes home and put them in the corners of her apartment. And the next Saturday, um, at 8 in the morning, the manager of the apartment complex knocks on her door. And, and you know, she's thinking, that's kind of rude. Some people sleep in on Saturday. I'm off today, and... You know, I'm up, but I'll go answer. And it was him. And she said, well, can I help you? And he said, well, I'm just here to inspect your water damage. She said, what? He said, well, the guy next door to you, the one where you share the wall with his kitchen and you share the wall with his bathroom, he, uh, he went crazy and he plugged up the drains and flooded the whole building. There's water in the whole building. She said, well, come right in and look. Uh, but God's protecting this apartment. I've got stakes in the corner. There wasn't one drop of water in her apartment. Every other apartment in the whole complex was flooded. And he shares her wall with his kitchen and his bathroom. She should have been the first place the water came in. Again, I, God's word is just powerful. That's, that's all I know. Okay, let's talk a minute about following God. Because when they're following that pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, I mean, pretty sure you're following God. They, they, there wasn't any doubt. Because I used to think, if I knew for sure that God wanted me to walk this path, that if I'm on this path, Right where God wants me to be, then things are going to go smoother, right? There's so many verses about God blesses those who walk in his ways and all that. So that sort of made sense to me. So let's, let's think about that idea for a second. And let's remember that Israel knew they were following God during this time. They're following the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And so there wasn't any doubt about that. And let's talk about where they were three days after they crossed the Red Sea. They're out in this desert, Saudi Arabia, basically, a desert. And they're headed to Mount Sinai. And it's three days after they cross the Red Sea. Now, I'm a, I want you to pretend you're with them for a minute. And I know you know the end of the story, but pretend you don't know the end of the story. It's, it's desert heat. you got all your possessions with you and your kids and your animals. And, and you don't know the end of the story. We're just following God. You know, Billy, that's God right there in the cloud. Let's go. Here we go. So we got our kids and we're going. So keep in mind, Israel had just witnessed God's protection from the ten plagues because Goshen was staked out set aside, set apart, and the plagues hurt the Egyptians but didn't hurt them in Goshen where the Israelites lived. So they cross the Red Sea and they see the deliverance of God when they, when they go on dry ground and looking at fish. They're walking by and fish are swimming eye level, you know, it's pretty amazing. But they're on dry ground and, and that's a pretty awesome escape. And, and what does dry mean, by the way? Not wet. Okay? Um, it wasn't just a shallow spot or, a, you know, a, a miracle because some wind blew and made it, you know, it was, a, it was dry ground in the middle of the Red Sea. Now, that's a faith issue. We either believe that or we don't. It's your choice, okay? They also witnessed the death of their enemies, and we have an enemy that has chariots and horses, and they're all trained for battle versus 430 years of slavery, and what are they trained for? Brick making and cooking. That's about it, see? So if there's a clash and a battle, who's going to probably win? 
from a human standpoint. Or if, if the good guys win, are we going to take some losses? They got horses and chariots and weapons. We got no weapons. Okay? So think about that. And yet they witnessed the, the, the death of their, all their enemies in that. And it says Israel walked through, this is Exodus 14, Israel walked through the sea on dry ground. The Lord rescued Israel and the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. By the way, how many losses did the Israelites have? None. Okay. Pretty awesome miracle by itself. And then the cloud lifts, so the Israelites followed. The cloud stops, they stop. Cloud moves, they move. Cloud stops, they stop. Cloud moves, they move. You get the picture? They know they're following God. This is one time. You know, I question myself a lot. Am I really following where he's saying? But here's, here's a, a biblical example where there's not a doubt. They're following God. Okay? They followed him for three days. And in Exodus 15, 22, we get a hint of a first problem. What is it? Travel three days in the desert without finding kind of a critical element, wouldn't you say? Okay, so water's heavy. You can only carry so much. Plus, you got all your possessions and all your kids. And it's probably reasonable to assume they're about out of water three days later. Now, let me just pause here. Nanny Spencer lives 20 minutes from our house. And my three boys, we'd get in the car, we'd go to Nanny's house, Mary Lynn, like a holiday or a weekend for the Yamboree, my favorite thing in the whole world, the Yamboree. And we'd go to Gilmer, and we'd sit in the car, and it never fails when the boys say, hand me the water bottle, I'm thirsty. As soon as we get in the car, Mary Lynn always had a water bottle, hand it back, here you go, and they'd share it, and they'd all drink out of this same straw and big water bottle. So one day we'd get in the car to go to Nanny's, and Blake said, hand me the water bottle. And Mary Lynn said, oh, I forgot it. He said, what? You forgot the water? We've got to drive all the way to Nanny's house in this air-conditioned car? And we don't have any water. We're going to have to wait 20 minutes. Can you imagine how these kids are talking? Three days, 120 degree heat, carrying everything they got. You think they're not whining? Mama, I'm thirsty. Well, honey, we're almost out. Take a little sip. We've got to keep the animals alive too. Well, Mama, I'm thirsty. Well, honey, that's God. We're following God. Can you imagine the whining? I mean, my three boys had whined 20 miles with an air-conditioned car. They're three days. It's just unbelievable. So God led them to an oasis. Boy, that's, doesn't that sound like a good ending to that story? Uh, verse 23. So then they came to the oasis of Mara. All right, good deal. Finally, we got water, and everybody's ready to drink. They're thirsty, but we've got one little problem. What is it? Mara means bitter. This is why Naomi wanted her name changed to Mara. She was bitter because she'd lost her sons and her husband. Mara means bitter. So do you think God said, oh, shoot, wrong oasis? I, I led them to the wrong place. They followed God, right? Do you think he said, oh, my mistake? I, I don't think so. See, I think God doesn't make mistakes. And so uh, uh, read Psalm 139, the whole thing. But two verses of it are real critical. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. God knows every word I was going to say tonight before I was born. Paris, Texas, June, the, what's today? God knew every word. Psalm 136, verse 9, uh, 16. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day passed. Interesting thought. You either believe it or not. So God led them to a place, it wasn't a mistake, he led them a place where they could die of thirst. And of course, the people gave the response we probably give today when things don't go our way. We complain and turn against God. 
why would God let this happen in our schools? Well, of course, God's not allowed in schools anymore, but we do the same thing. Why would God let this happen to me? Israel was furious. They complained and rebelled. They talked about getting rid of Moses. It was a problem. Okay? Has this ever happened to you? Where you pray and you watch for God's answer and you make a decision because you pray and pray and this is the only door that opens up and then things didn't go as smooth as you hoped? That's happened to me. It's happened to a lot of us. But what I end up saying is, well, I must have misheard God. See? I, 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 I'm not doubting God. I'm doubting me. I just misheard God. I know God wouldn't want me in this situation. Really? Are you sure about that? He led, him, he led Israel to a bunch of bitter water. Now, we know the end of that story, but what if you're sitting there staring at that bitter water? What would you think? We probably followed God wrong. We probably moved. It's probably close. We missed it. It was our fault. See, that we, we, you, have you ever had doubts? You ever prayed and prayed, and, you, and then you followed what you thought God was leading, and then I doubt? Let me just remind you, you're in good company. John the Baptist was, according to Jesus in Luke 7, 28, said there's no one greater born of woman than John the Baptist. By the way, as a, as a young, growing-up church Christ boy, I was always jealous that the Baptists had a guy in the Bible and the Church of Christ people didn't have a guy in the Bible. I, I wanted him to be John the Church Christer or something. But, but anyway, he was the greatest human born of man, and he doubted. Remember, he baptized Jesus. And he's there, and uh, when John baptized in the Jordan River, Mark 1, verse 9, it says that uh, John saw the Spirit descend onto Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and the last part of the verse says, and a voice from heaven said, this is the guy. This is my son. He's the one. So if there's one person on the planet that shouldn't have to go send his disciples to ask him if he's the one, John is the guy that shouldn't have to ask that. He's his cousin. He jumped in the womb before Jesus was born, and he baptized him and heard the voice from heaven say, this is him. But he doubted. Why did he doubt? He said he, he sent him to ask, are you the one? He doubted during a crisis. When the, when the circumstances of his life wasn't what he expected, he was expecting that king of kings and lord of lords. That's going to happen. It's called second coming. The timing is just off. See, He's just off a few thousand years. A period of grace where we could become Christians and live in heaven with them. See, God had a better plan than John's plan. John wanted him to take the throne right then. And it wasn't time yet. There's going to be a crisis in your life. If there hadn't been, there will be. And if there has been, there probably will be another one or two. And I understand. We're going to doubt. I doubt too. I question myself and I pray and I ask and it, it's a part. But why do we think it's going to be smooth sailing if, if we're following God? It wasn't for the Israelites. We went right to the bitter water. And for, if there's somebody here that doesn't know, the end of that story was they all complained and Moses prayed and God said, throw this tree in the water and it turned it sweet and two and a half million people got a drink. God can handle anything. In fact, I got an engineering, uh, engineer friend in Longview. He calculates things all the time and he, he said, uh, uh, did some research and, and to feed that many people in the desert every day is a hundred train load cars full of food a day. And God just sent it down from the sky, quail and manna. It's no problem for God. Why do we think that? Was it smooth sailing for Jesus? He was following God's plan. Not really. Was it, was it smooth for the apostles? They were all killed for their faith. 
So why do we think it's supposed to be smooth for me every day just because I'm following God? It's not that way. Jesus said in John 16, 33, Here on earth you're going to have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, I've overcome the world. If anybody ever tells you, if you become a Christian, nothing bad's going to happen to you, they're lying. Because Jesus said the opposite right here. Keep that in mind. That thinking is wrong. They did follow God right to a big problem situation. No water. And that's critical. You can't go long without water. But let me remind you, this is one example, Jeremiah 17.10. God tests people before he rewards them. I, the Lord, search mine, test hearts. I reward each person for what he has done. He humbles before he exalts. God led you in the desert to humble you and to test you. Ask Joseph if this isn't true. Joseph's 17 years old when God gives him these dreams and, you know, he gets thrown into slavery. And so what if God had given him a heads up? Hey, Joseph, I've got some things planned for you. He said, okay, God, what is it? He said, I'm going to put you uh, second in command over Egypt, which will cover the whole planet, and you're going to save the, uh, the world from starvation. Can you handle the job? Oh, put me down, Lord. I can do that. I'm sure there's a good salary attached to that job. Second in command to Egypt. Yeah, put me down. Okay, well, we got a little uh, training first. Training? What, what kind of training? Well, slavery and prison. Oh, how long will this slavery and prison last for? 13 years. How about Zebulun or Naphtali? They'd be good at this, Lord. I don't think this is for me. How long is 13 years to a 17-year-old? A lifetime. It's a good thing I don't know the future or what he has, because I got some trials that I couldn't handle 10 years ago, but I probably can handle now. And I'm learning things now that will help me handle things in the future. But he tests before he rewards, and he humbles before he exalts. The end of Joseph's story is pretty powerful, and the forgiveness he offered is even more powerful. Right? Why would God do this? Why would he lead Israel to a place where only he could save them, is to see if they're going to blame him or trust him. We all have crisis in our lives. Some people just get mad and blame God. And others say, this is making me run to you, Lord. I, I trust you're going to get me through this. I'll just tell you, at one point in my business life, and I tell this story in the Prayers Satan Hates book, at one point I had uh, six people stealing from me, and I had an accounting error we found, and it all happened at the same time, and the losses were half a million dollars, a little over $500,000. And I was so sure we were going bankrupt, I started praying my employees would find good jobs. And uh, I can remember Friday after Friday after Friday when, the, when the, I'd signed the paychecks, and, uh, and then I would give them to the secretary, and I'd say, hold these till the mail gets here, because there wasn't enough in the bank to cover what I just signed. And you know what everybody's going to do with their paychecks when you give it to them. They're going to run down and cash it. Right? And so the mail would come, and I'd go get the mail, and I'd, and I'd shut the door to my office, and I'd sit down, and I'd pray over the mail. Dear God, please help there to be $41,000 in this stack of mail so those paychecks I, don't, I just signed don't bounce. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'd count it, and it'd be 41200 <laughs> And the next Friday, I'd need 12000 and that'd be thirteen. And then I'd need thirty-three, and I'd get thirty-two nine, and I'd hold one of them, <laughs> hold my own check, you know, over and over. And I don't live like that personally, so I didn't like living like that in my business life for a few years, so we recovered from that. But you know what? It made me trust God more than ever. 
and I'd wake up and worry at night for a while, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Fear and faith can't coexist. We're going to talk about that. Why would God do that? And I think God is still doing that. He's leading us to a place where there's no way out but God. I think he's in the business of leading you to a place where he's the only way out. I think that's how he works. He does it with individual people, and you have a choice every day. You're making choices that's either drawing you closer to God and helping you to trust him more, or it's pulling you away from God. You're, you're getting to make those choices every day. He does it with marriages. You can do something every day to help your marriage, or you can do something every day to hurt your marriage. It's your choice. He does it with families. You can be leading your family and encouraging your family for a closer relationship with God every day, or you can neglect that. You're making those choices every day. He does it with businesses. I know businesses who are tithing as a business, and God's blessing them unbelievably. That's a choice they're making. I think he does it with cities. Recently, Detroit went bankrupt. It wasn't because they didn't have any money. It's because they didn't have as much as everybody wanted, and they couldn't decide how to divide it up, so they just declared bankruptcy and started over. Money has become our God. Don't let your IRA become your God. God's way bigger than that. And if we're going to worship the stock market, he's going to strike it. And it might be a good thing. Because eternity is not worth the IRA being good. And we need, to, we need to vote God's way. I'm not talking about Democratic, Republican. I'm talking about just God's issues. Save the children and help people. And we need to vote God's way on those things. God does it with nations. And we've been kind of kicking him out of the schools and the government for a long time. We keep kicking him out, he's going to leave. But by the way, let me encourage you. If, if that discourages you, and I know a lot of our generation and older are really worried about that. We've seen changes in our nation that we're not all happy with. Let me remind you, go read the book of Daniel. God knows how to take care of the godly and, and take care of the ungodly at the same time. How about the flood? A few little instances like that. You just worry about being godly. He'll help you through this, whatever it is. You can be standing in the gap for your nation. The choice is, what are you going to do? One of the other interesting things that has come up, and I had people ask me today about this, is dreams, dreams, dreams. A lot of people having dreams. We talked about nightmares a little bit so far and putting the verses around your bed and so forth. I've had so many people with good results from that. But also, uh, I was of the opinion that God used to use dreams in the Bible times, and he doesn't use dreams anymore. And, and I was writing the book, uh, Prayer Satan Hates, the one with the red cover back there, and I started to meet people who came to Christ and were baptized and became believers in Jesus because of a dream. I thought, wow, that's interesting. In fact, I, met, I don't have a slide on this right here, but a lady named Panta, whose dad was a Buddhist monk, a uh, priest, she had a dream, and, and uh, in the dream she realized she needed to go to, uh, actually it was Alpine Church of Christ in Longview, and she and her son were baptized the day she went and her husband moved out and acted like he didn't know her anymore because he's going to stay Buddhist and they disown you and uh, you know we all prayed for him and he goes to church with her now and he's been baptized too um, but she came to Christ because of a dream I was I was down at the Nissan place in Longview one weekend uh, a few years ago and I had uh, my youngest son's Jay his little Nissan needed oil change he was home for the weekend and uh, I ran down Saturday morning while they're all sleeping and I was going to wait wait on this truck, get it all changed before he's headed back to, to Dallas to school. And uh, the lady that was helping me while we was waiting on the truck to be finished up, she turned to me and said, uh, Sir, what do you do? 
And I said, well, actually, uh, I used to own a business down the street here, but, uh, but I'm a Christian author now. She said, really? What are you writing about right now? And I said, well, right now I'm, I'm writing on spiritual warfare. She said, really? She said, uh, let me tell you something. I, I used to be a drug addict. I, I, I used heroin every day. And my husband uh, used heroin every day. In fact, we made our living selling heroin. And I had a dream one night. And when I woke up the next morning, I turned to my husband and I said, I'm not going to do heroin anymore, ever. And she said, I have no desire for it. And she said, also, I'm not going to sell it. And she said, you know, he divorced me and left because he wasn't going to quit heroin. And that was his way of making money. So he divorced me and left. And, and I moved in with my aunt. She's a Christian, so I'm a Christian now. And I said, whoa, whoa, time out. Let me make sure I have this right. You're a heroin addict daily, and your husband is, and you sell heroin for a living. That's how you pay the bills, and you have one dream, and you walk away from it, and no cravings for heroin at all. Even though your husband left you, 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 you walked away. And she said, yes, that's right. And I said, <clears throat> what was in the dream? And she said, God showed me what it was like to go to hell. And when I woke up, I was ready to do whatever it took to not go to hell. God can use dreams if he wants to. Not that he needs my permission, but I've discovered that he's still using them if he wants to. He's not the great I used to could. He's the I am because he still does. And I'm starting to think maybe there's a few people I know I need to pray who'll have that same dream. Maybe that'll wake them up. And they'll change direction from where they're going right now. Now I want to talk a little bit about demonic harassment in the modern world today. And this starts with a faith versus fear uh, thought. I mentioned this a minute ago when I was worried about our, our future. See, what happens, a lot of times I would wake up at 3 a.m. It just happened that way, and I, I hear people telling me the same thing. I wake up and worry. You ever do that? I'm not going to make you raise your hand. You ever wake up at night and worry? Hey, what happens with those problems as you think about them laying there in the dark? <laughs> they get bigger. And if you chase that rabbit down that road for long, it's, it's really big. By morning, there's no way. It's a ball and chain on my ankle. that I, and, I'm, and plus, I'm tired trying to face all this because I didn't get any sleep, worried about all that stuff. By the way, I heard somebody say one time, worry is faith in Satan. Worry is faith in Satan. Because you're focused on what Satan wants you to think might happen when God's really in control. Don't have faith in Satan. So by morning it's impossible and I sit there and say, how can I fix this? And if things get worse, I don't think I can handle it. I'm about to bring shame on my family, on the church. And I said that. I'm going to go bankrupt. I've been, I have I've tried to do the right thing, but these people are stealing from me. And there was this accounting error and I can't help that. And, and now I'm going to bring shame on the family and the church. I've been vocal about my Christianity, so I'm going to bring a bad name. You know what? God's bigger than that. He's bigger than that, and he's not worried about that. Abraham Lincoln went bankrupt five times before he became president. Do you remember that about him, or do you remember how he freed the slaves? See? That's not the issue. Wouldn't my church family be better off if I was dead? You know, the suicide rate is higher than it's ever been in every age category. Satan is convincing people in, when they wake up and worry at night that everybody that loves them would be better off if they were dead. That is a lie. But people are believing it because they're in the middle of that fear versus faith syndrome. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Don't you love my graphics? I'm going to let the cat out of the bag 
and tell you something that you'll never forget. Satan does his best work in the dark. That's when he does his best work. Because faith and fear can't coexist. One displaces the other. By the way, before we go any further, I'm going to tell you how to stop that. I figured out how to stop that. When you wake up and worry, and you don't want to do that anymore, all you have to do when you wake up is just say, okay, Lord, I'm awake now. Who do you want me to pray for? And I will start praying for somebody. And then I'd just relax you right back to sleep. Satan quit waking me up at 3 in the morning because I joined the battle against him every time. It doesn't happen to me anymore. I sleep like a baby. And I don't mean wake up crying every hour. I mean I sleep good. <laughs> the good news about this is you have a choice as to whether or not this happens. Okay? You can focus on your fear or you can focus on your faith. When I say, Lord, who can I pray for? I'm focusing on my faith. If I say, Lord, remind me of the scriptures that say you're going to take care of me if I'm following you, and I'll think about those scriptures, I'm focusing on my faith. You get to choose what you focus on. But focus on one destroys the other. If you focus on your fear, your faith evaporates. But if you focus on your faith, your fears evaporate. You got control. Think about that next time you wake up worrying at 3 in the morning. I encourage you to choose faith. Choose today who you're going to serve. Joshua 24. Verse 15. I also had a call one day from uh, an elder in a, in a church of Christ in North Arkansas. And I had been to his church doing a, I've got a four-day series on heaven, and it's a lot of fun to do too. It's a really encouraging thing, and I've got about 900 slides on that too. And um, so I'd been to his church and done that, and then he called me one day and he said, he said, Steve, I got a weird question for you. He said, I know you're working on a book on prayer and spiritual warfare. He said, my daughter just bought the house next door to us. We live on two-acre lots right at the outskirts of town. It's a nice little country area, and uh, they got a great deal on the house next door, and I'm older and have some health problems now, so we're excited to have my daughter and her family next door, but the last three families who lived in this house got divorced, and I don't want that to happen to my daughter. What do I do to clean up the property? That's what he asked me, and I said, well, Donna, I don't I don't really know, but Bill was going to kill himself, and we did Bible verses on tent stakes, and I got talked into selling stakes, and so, you know, he said, oh, man, that's a cool idea. Send me three sets, and I'll mail you a check. Well, six weeks later, he called me, and he said, Steve, you're not going to believe this. I love it when they start with, Steve, you're not going to believe this, because I'm telling you, I'm going to believe it. I've heard, I've heard story after story. I had a call. Let me tell you this right quick. I had a call yesterday. A biker is a Bikers for Christ group in Carthage, Texas, one of the leaders of this area-wide or region-wide biker for Christ group, loves these steaks, and he buys 100 at a time for me. He gives them away to people all the time. And so he called me, uh, this, this is uh, Tuesday, he called me yesterday morning when I came and sat in Patrick's old office, and he said, Steve, i got to tell you this neat story. He said, they asked me to be a speaker at our, at our yearly convention in Glen Rose, I think it's in Glen Rose, and he said, I had a slide, I had to pick a picture of your red steaks, and I was going to show them that. And the guy that was introducing me got up before me in front of all these Christian bikers, and, uh, and the guy's introduced him. He said, before I introduce William, let me just tell you, God's put it on my heart. I think we need to stake out our county. William said, what did you just say? He said, God put it on my heart. I think we need to stake out our county. He said, turn my projector on. And he showed him a picture of my slides. He said, Steve Hempio, we got slides with the verses already in. They all went crazy. Where can you get those? Now, let me tell you, only God can do that. None of them know me. And all of a sudden, that happens. In fact, I was at a booth in Kentucky a missions conference, and I get a phone call from a guy, did I tell you this already, a guy in Connecticut? 
Okay, maybe I didn't tell you this. And, and he says, uh, hey, are your steaks already have verses on them? And I said, yeah, are you using steaks? Oh, yeah, our, our church, everybody's saying we need to stake out our house and our business. and our Really? He said, yeah, the word for cross and the word for stake is the same word in the Greek. I said, it is? He said, yeah, in the Jewish Bible it says they nailed Jesus to his execution stake. Well, that's cool. And then uh, a guy walked up to the booth as soon as I hung up, and he said, your steaks already have verses on them? And I said, yeah, are you doing steaks? And he said, oh, yeah, I run an 8,000-acre farm uphill in Illinois, and uh, I teach farming God's way in Africa and South America every summer. And all the local farmers, when they start to farm, they call the local witch doctor to come bless the land. Even if a Christian farmer starts to farm, he calls a witch doctor, and they come and sprinkle animal blood. They're cursing the land, and the Christians don't even realize it. So we have a whole chapter in chapter 1. We say you stake out the land. And then you get on your knees on that land and hold some of the dirt up to God and say, God, please remove the curses from this land, and I'm going to give you a tithe of the crops from here on. And said, the land just turns brown and rich, and the crop yield goes way up. He said, this stuff's real, Steve. Like I said, I can't make this stuff up. So this guy uh, bought three sets of steak, and he called me six weeks later. And he said, uh, Steve, I put the first set around my house. And, you know, I'm all prayed up. I don't, I don't really need them, but I said, I'm going to put them around my house, too. I'm all prayed up. I look how he said that. And my wife, my daughter was moving in that day. So we put the next four right around her corners of her house. And I said, okay, your house, her house. What would you do with the third set? And he said, I put them on the corners of her two-acre lot. I said, okay, wait a minute. So you got two sets of stakes around the same house. He said, castles used to have a moat and a wall. I love my daughter. And I said, oh, okay, I get that. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I was excited to get it done. I went to bed at 10 o'clock. And I said, my kind of man, bed at 10 o'clock, that's me. And he said, uh, midnight, I woke up. And it sounded like an NFL football player was running across my roof back and forth. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom, boom. I said, man, somebody's on the roof. I put on my jeans and I got my headlight and my shotgun. And I walked outside and he said, I walked all around that house. There wasn't nothing up there. And I walked back in all confused and I sat down in the chair and it started up again dawned on me, it's demonic. He said, I hit my knees and started praying. He said, Steve, it went on for four and a half hours. Three times it got so loud, I went back out with my shotgun and flashlight, so there's got to be somebody. Nothing. It would beat on the walls. It would, it would trance back and forth, last across the roof. It would scratch on the vent pipes that came up through the bathroom and kitchen ceiling. He said, at 4.30 in the morning, it finally quit. I said amen and went to bed, and that's been six weeks. I made sure it took before I called you. Hadn't had nothing in six weeks. I guess whatever it was I drove out of the house next door was mad at me, so I'm glad I staked out my house too. Right down the street from me, about 12 or 13 years ago, just around the corner, a, a total of probably three blocks, a kid committed suicide in his bedroom. He was an only child, shot himself in the head with a gun. His girlfriend had broken up with him, and he was distraught. And being an only child, and his family uh, couldn't stand to stay in the house after they had the funeral and everything, so they sold the house and, and moved away. Some people we knew bought the house. Now, they got a teenage boy sleeping in the same bedroom where this kid committed suicide. About six months later, this, this kid went to the youth minister at, at the church where they were in Longview and said, uh, I, I need prayer. I have thoughts of suicide now. Which never happened before he moved into this house. And by the way, about two years later, he attempted suicide. He took a whole bottle of pills and had swallowed them. 
and got scared and called his mom and they rushed him to Good Shepherd Medical Center and pumped his stomach and he lived and uh, two years ago he graduated from high school. And uh, they sold the house. And then some new people bought the house. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I'm seeing connections here because I'm knowing about the boy that asked for prayers at the youth group and I knew the other one committed suicide. And I wanted to go up to these new people and I, I wanted to say, you know, everybody in this house commits suicide. And how do you say that to somebody, you know? Uh, be sure and put stakes around your house because bad things have happened here. You don't want to say that. So I just kind of ignored it. And I watched. And they lived there uh, 18 months. And then I see a moving van out front. They're packing up and leaving. And so I got to say something now. And I walked up. I, was, I do a walking uh, route that goes right by that house every day. I walk twice a day. I'm diabetic and been on insulin 40 years and I need to exercise. So I do all that. And, and so they're packing and I walk up to the guy and I say, uh, hey, I'm I live around here. I just, I just wondered if, is there something wrong with the house that you're moving away or did you get transferred or what? He said, oh, we just found a house we like better. As I, I said, okay, well, I didn't mean to be nosy, but I, I'm a Christian author and speaker on spiritual warfare. And, you know, three owners ago before you, see, there was a guy that committed suicide, a young man, and then the people that bought it after that, he tried to commit suicide and asked for prayer. And anyway, he lived through it. And then, and then you're here and you're leaving. And so I just... He said, you're kidding. I said, no, sir, why? He said, well, actually, we're moving because my son has night terrors, and they won't go away no matter what we do. So we bought a house a few blocks away. And I said, I tell you what, let me give you my book, and let me give you a set of stakes. Wherever you move to, put these around your house. And I kind of, boy, thank you. And so now I'm, now I'm going to help the next person. So the next person moves in. I see the moving van pull up, and I'm on my trail again, and I, I put a book in my back pocket and some stakes, and I just said, you know, I'm Steve Hemfield. I know this will sound weird, but I told them the whole story. And they got this funny look on their face. They said, okay, okay, thank you. And I left. And you know when you walk by there now, all the lights are on. It's brighter than it was. And they seem fine. Kids playing in the yard. It, didn't, it wasn't like that before. I have decided that the, the ideas we talked about last night with the territorial authorities in the demonic realm, that also they focus on issues. Divorce, depression, suicide. Uh, sexual immorality, pornography, these things, they're great things to pull us away from God. So they're territorial and maybe focused on an issue. Now we're going to talk about, uh, quickly about Paul. I want to talk about his thorn in the flesh. And, and please don't uh, let this little short section upset you if you're just sure you know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was because there have been a lot of scholars, nobody really knows, and they like to guess from another book at the end of another chapter, way far away from this book, he says, Paul says, see, I write this in my own hand, so I, got, I write with large letters. So what's Paul's thorn in the flesh thought to be? Bad eyesight. Okay? Let me, let me give you an alternative idea. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 says, I have received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Pride mentioned twice in the verse. Kind of interesting. Okay? Why? Would God give Paul something to hinder his ministry? Why? He's given up a life as a prominent Jew. He has trained at the feet of Gamaliel, a perfect guy for the Jews, by the way, and he's going to send him to the Gentiles instead. But why would God see a guy walk away from his family, probably wealth and, and position, to, uh, to totally commit his life as a missionary in Paul's journeys and wrote half the New Testament, and he's going to give him something to hinder his ministry? Why? Why would he allow that? Let me give you my idea as, as a possibility here. 
Paul got to see, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 4, he got to see paradise, the third heaven. And the last of that says, it's, it's things that no human is allowed to tell about. Whoa. No human can tell about what he saw. Pretty, pretty special what he saw. You know, he said it's worth bragging about. He could have bragged about it. It's worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do that, he said. The first thing I thought of was, I wonder if it's what Ezekiel saw when he said, you know, the cherubim, and, and they were floating around the throne with three sets of wings, one set over their face, one set over their body, and one set over their feet, and they were shouting what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I thought, maybe that's what he saw. But I said, oh, can't be that. A man wrote about it. And Paul said what he saw no man was allowed to tell about. Okay? So it had to be more than what Ezekiel saw. Uh, that's, a, that's an awesome thought. We also know it wasn't bad pizza. It was a revelation from God because it tells us that in the verse 7. The source of the, of the vision was God. Okay? A revelation from God, verse 7. And we know also that this thorn was to prevent conceit, to keep me from becoming conceited. See, Paul was pretty privileged. He got to see something David didn't see, Moses didn't see, Joseph didn't see, Daniel didn't see. You know what? Uh, Joseph and Daniel are two people that not one bad thing is said about in the Bible. You know, Moses lied. I mean, uh, Moses made some mistakes. Abraham lied and Jacob lied and deceived and all that. But name me something bad the Bible says about Daniel or Joseph. And yet they didn't get to see what Paul saw. And Paul, by the way, committed a few murders along the way before he was allowed to write half the New Testament. Okay? I looked up, I don't pretend to be a scholar, but it's pretty easy with the internet and Google to look up what a Greek word means. Do you know what the word for messenger usually means? Angel. So you could actually read that, an angel from Satan. By the way, I call an angel from Satan a demon because he followed rebellion against God, followed Satan in rebellion against God. So we're still in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, thorn in the flesh. See, it was to keep him humble. Humility and conceit are the opposite. This is why rich people and famous people think they're above the law. You're going to give me a speeding ticket? You know who I am? Did you see the movie Mission Impossible? I was the star. You know, they think they're above the law when you've got power and money. You're conceited. We couldn't have any of that if you're going to spread the gospel around the world, could we? So humility and conceit are the opposite. Paul's thorn was to keep him humble. Okay? Also, Conceit distracts you from your true uh, mission, and humility keeps you focused. Pretty important. Okay? What if you'd seen it? Wouldn't you want to brag about it? I'd want to tell a few people, I can tell you. It'd be hard not to. And wouldn't you ask for relief? Paul did. Verse 8 and 9 says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, Quit praying about that. My grace is sufficient. Pray for something else. Okay, hold, hold on just a second. Let's think about that. He cut Paul off at only three requests? Every other example in the Bible I can think of where prayer is the example, it's like keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, don't give up. He's got these golden bowls filling your prayer, get it full, and then something might happen. It's up to God, keep praying. But not in this example. And here's Daniel who prayed three times a day. Uh, Daniel 6, verse 10. God didn't tell him to stop. I think that's why he got thrown in the lion's den. And after 21 days when he'd been praying in Daniel 10, 12, and 13, you know, you do the math. He did 21 uh, days, three times a day. That's 63 prayers. And he cut Paul off at only three? What's the deal with this? See? Until God tells you to stop, be like Daniel. Keep on praying. And the answer finally arrives. Don't give up on prayer. 
be persistent and consistent. Okay? Paul was told to stop praying because his thorn was necessary to keep him humble and focused and dependent on God. And I think that's a good place for all of us to be. Humble and focused and dependent on God. Because really we are dependent on God, even if we don't want to admit it. I think his, his thorn in the flesh was demonic. Read the verse again. I have received such wonderful revelations from God, the third heaven, paradise, no man's allowed to write about. So, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in the flesh, an angel from Satan to torment me. Why would you pull another verse from another book at the end of a chapter out of context and apply it to here when the verse tells us what his thorn in the flesh was? An angel from Satan to torment him. I think that was his thorn in the flesh. It was demonic. That's my opinion. Please don't let me make you mad if you're sure it's eyesight. But let me assure you that eyesight, bad eyesight doesn't ensure humility. <laughs> There's a whole lot of us have to wear glasses later, and, and humility is not a, a common trait for everybody with glasses who have bad eyesight. It's just not. Um, now, then you might say, okay, Steve, how did this manifest itself? I have no clue, but I got some guesses. Maybe Paul's the only one who could see this demon. And... I imagine they're not pretty. Maybe the demon is trying to distract Paul from his mission. Every time he tries to preach, he's whispering in his ear or yelling at him or making motions, trying to get him to lose his concentration because Paul's bringing people to Christ for eternity's sake. But I can tell you what I would do if I was that demon assigned to Paul. I'd be reminding him of all the Christians he killed before he became one. Oh, you're preaching to a big group tonight, I see, Paul. How many did you kill for? You, did you kill 50 or was it 52? Oh, I'm sorry, it was 60, wasn't it? I don't know the number, but Paul was involved in helping Stephen's death and many more, and he was headed to Damascus to kill more when, when God turned him around. I imagine he woke up in a cold sweat some nights with some guilt feelings, don't you? I think his thorn in the flesh was a demon. Strongholds separate us from God. Don't let a toehold become a foothold and become a stronghold. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Take a stand. Have a safe place to go. Let God rule your house. Pray about that. Announce that. I, I've, I've read about people. In fact, that uh, movie War Room, that's what Priscilla did. She said, Satan, get out of this house. Open the door. I've had other people go to their front door and open it and said, Jesus, I want you to know you're welcome here. Let me show you around my house. Come on in. This is our living room. You can come here anytime. This is our bedroom. These are the closets. This is your house. I'm at your service. And it changes the atmosphere. It changes the atmosphere. We live in enemy territory. Satan's called the God of this world for now. We live in enemy territory. So how do we fight? How did Jesus fight? He quoted the Bible. Every time he was attacked, he quoted the Bible. You can't quote it if you don't know it. Satan perverts the truth. We've got to remember that. And there's wolves in sheep's clothing, even in churches. We, we saw that verse uh, Sunday night, so we've got to know the truth. There's a mental war. When it says take captive every thought, taking captive is a military term. That means thoughts are being placed there that we shouldn't have in us. That says Satan can mess with your thoughts. You follow me? I've heard people say, don't ever pray out loud. Satan will know it. He can mess with your thoughts. Remember the parable of the... Uh, the uh, seeds where the birds came and took the seeds away before it could germinate. What, what were those seeds? They were, they were knowledge of the kingdom. Somebody planted a seed, and that knowledge, uh, Jesus loves you. Come to church. You know, think about your salvation. Think about your turn. Those are seeds of the kingdom we're planting in other people's lives. 
And Satan's in there stealing those thoughts. Oh, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You're happy where you are. Church takes too much time. That's what they're hearing in their mind. Because Satan is messing with their minds. We're supposed to take captive every thought. It's a war. That is a military term. So here's how I pray about that. Lord, help me to capture and remove all thoughts that lead me toward evil. Make me deaf, dumb, and blind to evil. Only be open to truth in Jesus' name. By the way, that's a good prayer to pray for somebody you love who's walking away from God. Lord, help them be deaf and dumb and blind to evil and only be able to hear the truth. Put somebody in their life that'll, that'll say the right thing at the right moment to make a difference. Okay, I've got about uh, 70 or 80 more slides. We can't, I can't go any further, so we'll, we'll stop. Uh, I know there'll be some questions, so I'll hang around here for questions. I want to just thank you so much for coming each night. Uh, it's been a blast. I hope you've had half as much fun as I've had. I uh, wish we had another night or two to have more fun, but uh, you're, you're probably tired of all this and ready to go home. Thank you for your kindness and your kind attention, for your encouragement and for buying stuff. Uh, it, it helps me keep going. If you know anybody needing a free speaker, I don't charge. Some churches help me and help with expenses, but some can't. I'll still go either way. And uh, I'm getting invited, by the way, to all kinds of churches all over the country. I've been to 120 cities in 14 states and three countries so far. And uh, I think I'm where God wants me to be, and that's, that's a good feeling. But thank you for your love and encouragement this week. Let me end it with a prayer. Dear God, we love you so much. These people have proved they've loved you. They've come uh, every night this week. It's been full in here just to hear more about you and draw closer to you and to figure out how to defeat the enemy. Thank you for their, their kind hearts and gentle spirits and their dedication and focus of being kingdom-minded people. I pray a special blessing for each family here, every relationship here, every marriage here. I pray for uh, some of your mightiest and strongest angels to be stationed around this church and around the people here and all their families and loved ones. Father, each of us have people we love who are, uh, are pulling away from you instead of pulling closer to you. Uh, put somebody in their life that, that helps change that. Give them a, a soft heart to receive those words. And, and uh, we pray that you would uh, plant and water that and, and help that thought not to be taken captive by the enemy. Uh, help it not to be confused by the enemy. Help them to be clear-minded and understand that Jesus saves, and they need Jesus, and they need obedience to, to, to your will and your plan so they can live forever with you in heaven. Father, we want heaven to be fuller because of what we have done and because you're good and love us and want to give us good things. So help us to be kingdom-minded and, and not selfish. Help us to be kingdom-minded with our time and with our money and with our resources. Help us to use what we have to help others. Give us wisdom, strength, and courage for the days ahead. And Father, even if the world gets worse and worse, help us to realize that, that uh, we're right on schedule. Because when you show up, everything's going to get fixed. And you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We're looking forward to that day and seeing you face to face. Until then, use us to your glory. We want to be Navy SEAL Christians in your service. And uh, help us to be more focused on your kingdom than we are life or death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.